The nightmare creatures of the dark are getting closer, and my campfire is dwindling. But if you follow the Darkness Prevails podcast on Spotify, leave us a review on iTunes, and follow me on Twitter at Dark Prevails. You can keep the symbolic fire going strong and never miss another scary story from us. Today's episode is a measure in different levels of intensity. One of these stories is a cozy ghost story, one is a strange creature sighting, and one is an intense monster attack tale, all of which take place on old or forgotten trails. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, you're gonna need to wear two seatbelts for this ride. Enjoy these three scary stories, like the video, and be sure to comment below with what you liked, didn't like, and what you want to hear next. And send me your stories at darkstories.org for a chance to have them narrated. Now, let's begin. Siskiyou Wendigo From Wicked Wendigo a bit of backstory first. Oregon is home to thousands of long-abandoned logging roads. Nearly 50% of the state is covered in forest, and roughly 80% is considered timberland by the Bureau of Land Management. I moved here when I was 16. My mother and stepfather divorced, so I decided to move into southern Oregon to live with my biological father. I grew up all over central and southern California, so the lush, dense landscape of Southern Oregon was a new experience for me. It is unbelievably beautiful here. We lived in a small two-bedroom home in the middle of a 65-acre plot of land. The property bordered the Siskiyou National Forest. You had to drive a good 10 minutes on a narrow dirt road through dense forest to find our driveway. The owners were a lovely elderly couple who lived in the area all their lives. They lived in a large home at the beginning of the property. The elderly gentleman told us we were free to hunt and explore on his land as much as we desired. He simply requested that we not go on the blocked logging road that led up to the large mountain to our west. We happily agreed, seeing no need to ever do such a thing. This is my experience. I'd been living with my dad for about two months at this point. I remember being out of school for the weekend, and I loved the weekends. I would explore the dense forest with my dad's nine-month-old German Shepherd, Buck. I'd even camped overnight a couple of times with Buck. I decided I wanted to camp again that night, so I loaded up my pack with everything I'd need for the overnight trip. I asked my dad, who was nervous about me camping alone, and he reluctantly agreed, only requesting that I take the hunting rifle with me. Black bears and wolves are uncommon here, but I saw his reasoning and agreed. I said my goodbyes and headed out with Buck around 6 p.m. that night. I was still new to the area, so I never ventured too far, only camping in places I had previously scouted. I remembered a nice little clearing to the west, so I headed off in that direction. I arrived about 30 minutes later. The clearing was crescent-shaped, the middle of the clearing was roughly 30 feet wide, more than enough room for my one-man tent and a small fire pit. I set my pack down and began gathering large rocks and fallen brush for the fire pit. I had my tent set up, 
and a small fire blazing about 30 minutes later. It was dark at this point. Buck and I were sitting against a fallen log, roasting hot dogs on a large three-pronged fork. Suddenly, I noticed Buck's ears perk up. He's up on all four legs and staring straight into the dark woods behind us. Buck was still a pup. He hadn't quite learned patience or the dangers of the woods yet. So when I heard rustling in the brush, and I saw Buck dash off after the sounds, I wasn't surprised. I stood up and called for him. He wasn't obeying my commands. I started to get worried. I knew I'd have to venture away from camp to find him. I threw my boots on, grabbed my flashlight, and strapped my rifle over my shoulder. I headed off in the direction Buck had gone. I was calling his name, followed by whistling. I then stopped to listen for any sounds for a moment, noises that might indicate his location. I heard nothing but the crickets and frogs, so I pushed on. I knew I had to find him. My dad would be devastated if something happened to his pup. I was about 50 yards from camp then, when I noticed deep tire marks in the ground. They made a small trail through the trees. I remember seeing this before. The trail started at the beginning of the property and led up to the abandoned logging road the old man told us about. I decided to follow this small truck trail, hoping Buck had gone that way. I walked for about 15 minutes when the dense woods started to thin out. The moonlight was shining brightly and I could easily see without my flashlight. There was a small gate blocking a one-truck length dirt road. The road ascended the side of a fairly tall mountain. I stood at the gate and called, Buck! Here, boy! I waited for about ten seconds when I heard from the top of the road, Buck! Here, boy! My blood ran cold. It was like a distorted version of my voice. The tone was almost mocking me. I slowly began to back away from the gate when I saw something at the top of the road. It was on all fours, and it slowly crawled out from the tree line bordering the road. It was incredibly tall, maybe seven feet, its limbs slender and long. It stood with a hunched back and turned its small head towards me. Its eyes were large and yellow. I was frozen in place, my hands sweating and my body trembling. Suddenly, there was a rustling sound behind me. I turned to see my dad running towards me with Buck close behind. I looked back at the road to see a single large male deer standing where the creature had been and it was just staring at us, those all-too-familiar yellow eyes glaring back at me. I asked my dad if he saw that. He looked up at the road and said, Yeah, that's a fine buck. Maybe we'll come back tomorrow and track him. He hadn't seen the creature. We walked back to my campsite. I decided not to tell him what happened. My dad is a no BS kind of guy and I knew he would not believe me. I asked how he had found me. He said that Buck made his way home and when he saw that I wasn't with the dog, he went out to look for me. We packed up my camp and headed back home after that. I never saw the thing again 
I still live in Southern Oregon, but I'm far away from what stalks the woods of the Siskiyou National Forest. The Girl in the Pink Leather Jacket From Who the Heck Do You Think I Am? I'm a guy who's old enough to know better, and still young enough not to care. That's my motto, anyway. Or it was until what I'm about to tell you happened. Beyond drinking, I personally do not take any substances. But I don't judge or care if you do them. Whatever you do is your own business. But drinking, though, I'm a fish. I can hold my own against the best drinkers. All of this is relevant to the story. Even though I don't indulge in any mind-altering substances, I seem to hang out with quite a few people who do. So a friend of mine called me, informing me of a crazy weekend-long party in the woods coming up. When my friends throw a party, it's always something that feels like an end-of-the-world event. It was late in the fall in upstate New York. If you're unfamiliar with upstate New York, it is beautiful. Nothing except for woods in all directions, lots of great camping areas, it's a nature lover's paradise. I'm six foot three, and at the time I was a good 220 pounds. I got my truck ready, a Chevy 2500. I cleaned it up first and got it ready to sleep in. I like camping, but I hate sleeping on the ground. So I put two cot mattresses in the back with three pillows and two comforters. I filled my coolers up, one with food and the other with beer and liquor. I said see you later to my dad and hit the road heading off to this party. By about 6pm, I showed up. I enjoy being fashionably late. You see, while I'm not afraid of hard work, I had no idea if I planned to stay the whole time, so I wasn't about to get there and set up all their stuff for them. The area in question was down a dirt road way off the beaten path. A small open area of trees led to an open area surrounded by trees. When I got there, I was taken back, there had to be over 20 vehicles parked there. There were also 10 portajons past the cars on the left, next to the wall of trees. As I looked to the right, I could see people sitting around an area preparing a fire. Past that was a projector set up to a makeshift white screen. I was immediately hit in the face by a stench and a delicious smell at the same time, which was from a certain dank plant being smoked and sausages. I turned my head to the right more and saw that there were two grills going, and they were cooking sausages and burgers. Sure enough, there was a guy cooking on both with a stogie in his mouth. I made a sour face and sighed. Oh well, here we go again, I thought, dealing with my mentally suppressed friends and their enjoyment of something I still don't understand. Anyway, I pulled my truck in close to where the fire was, not giving a crap about how some guy was trying to tell me where to park. I smiled as I slid out of my truck. Towering over him, I asked, You want a cold beer? I don't feel like walking back and forth, and I'm not about to carry my cooler any further than I have to. He laughed and shook my hand, introducing himself. At that point, I realized I didn't know many of these people. I handed him a beer, locked my truck, and went looking for my friend who had invited me here. I found him finishing up his creation of the projector screen. I asked him what he planned on showing. Music, my good man, music. Gotta get the ladies in the mood for a good time. He thought he was a ladies' man, and I humor him on it. 
he starts whatever he calls music and lights up a smoke. He informs me that way more people are coming and it's going to be a heck of a weekend. I light up a smoke and inform him that I'm only here for the ladies. He looked out and smiled at where I parked. Good view from there, he said. Fishing with the right kind of bait too. We both had a good laugh. Fast forward a few hours and it's about 11 p.m. None of the girls had really piqued my interest. I'm picky and have a type for the future missus. I go back to my cooler and grab my Johnny Walker. Figured I might as well get myself toasty and pass out, then head home tomorrow. I turn back around to see a girl I hadn't seen before. She was talking with the other folks and joined a ring of people passing around a joint. I walked up to my friend, not even looking at him, and I asked, Dude, who's the girl in the pink leather jacket? After what felt like five minutes, I turned to look at him with the serious look I get when I see something I want. He wasn't even paying attention. I asked him again, and he turned to me, saying, What? So for the third time, I asked, Who's the girl in the pink leather jacket? He replied, I've no idea, my man. I told you a lot of people were coming. I gave him that look, and he started laughing. I remembered he was staring at something and asked him what he was staring at. He said that he thought he saw something in the wood line, but it was probably the fire playing with the shadows. It was loud with the music going, and everyone was feeling good. I shook it off and walked up to the girl in the pink leather jacket. I introduced myself and asked her her name. She was gorgeous, long dirty blonde hair with icy blue eyes and fair skin. She was short too, fit most of my criteria, which was awesome. She turned to me and smiled. I could have melted right there. Then she said, Wouldn't you like to know? Attitude. Yeah, I was smitten. We started talking some more. She was a bit strange, though. She kept staring off into space while we talked. She kept pace in the conversation perfectly for someone who was on a mind-altering substance while staring off into space. She stopped abruptly and walked back over to the crowd of people I managed to pull her away from a few minutes ago so I joined them all as well. After about another hour, the group shifted into three separate units. The girl was happy to sit on my tailgate with me in our group. She kept her 100-yard stare going, though. My friend pulled me aside and asked me about it. I told him I had no idea, so he told me that she wasn't the only weird one that showed up. Even with his mental state, he knew not to just point at someone as he nodded in the direction of a man. So I let him talk while I gave this man the once-over and made some monitoring of him. He was strange, looked homeless. He barely spoke, and he awkwardly fumbled about. His clothes were dirty, and his jacket was old and ragged. He had a vodka bottle in his right hand, and he would open the bottle and take a sip every so often. He kept saying something about having to go pee. It was about 2 a.m. at this point. My friend said something about everyone hitting the bathroom before he turned all the lights off, so the girls all went to the bathroom in a herd and fast. All except for the girl in the pink jacket. She stayed sitting on the tailgate with me. So I joined her, and I informed her that if she wanted, she could share the bed of my truck with me. She'd have her own bed and pillow and comforter. She smiled, pushing me onto my back and giving me a kiss I'll never forget. She had been smoking and drinking all night yet she tasted like a breath of fresh air, sweet and smooth. I was wide awake then. 
Some of the girls were making their way back to the tents. She said, don't go anywhere, I'll be right back. She rolled off of me and the tailgate very fast. I was up quick and looked to make sure she was okay. She didn't even make a sound and was already walking toward the toilets. I had a great view of her walking away. As I smiled to myself, I saw the weird guy with the vodka bottle. He was headed toward the toilets, about 20 feet behind her. I'm a chivalrous man, a southern upbringing, so I then too rolled off the tailgate, nowhere near as graceful as she had been. I hit the ground and it hurt, but I got up quick to head over toward the toilets, where she went and that man had followed. My friend stopped me to make sure I was okay. I was trying to hurry him up because I didn't want anything to happen to her. So when I made sure he knew I was okay in his stupor, I started walking very fast toward the bathrooms. I had all kinds of bad mental images of what I would find when I got to the toilets. I was about 100 feet away from the bathrooms when everyone was shook to the core by a scream. It wasn't human. It sounded like a mixture between an animal's and a man's. The porta potties were in rows of five. The back row was closest to the trees and had been knocked over, and I saw blood everywhere. My gun was in my hand and my flashlight was in the other. The last stall to the left of the five was where the blood trail started. Leading to the woods, there was the vodka bottle completely whole. The smell of blood and a rotting smell was filling my nose then, and the man's jacket was shredded in the trees with blood all over it. There was hair everywhere. I was sweating at this point, terrified. It all happened so fast. I saw the man's arm, covered in hair, and it was no longer attached to his body. I held back a gag reflex. As I did, a branch snapped. Instantaneously, the flashlight went toward the noise. I would make out what was left of the man's body. He was missing an arm, a hand, his lower half, and his head. That's not all. He had chunks ripped from what was left of him. Then, what I can only describe as a white furry hand had plunged itself through his sternum. It was covered in a thick black goo, almost like tar. I took all of this in quickly, and it hit me that the thing that did this was behind his body. The creature had one icy blue eye, which was puffy and watery, and one golden amber eye. The LED flashlight I had illuminated everything. It was like some sort of disgusting horror film, like some sort of bear tearing apart a robot if I was in a science fiction movie. The most important thing hit me just before the others were about 20 feet from me. This creature was wearing a pink leather jacket. I could make out the bottom right zipper, as it seemed to be holding the man's body to hide itself. Just as everyone was about five feet from me, it threw the man's body, sending me backwards into everyone. What happened next was chaos, screaming, vomiting, and running. The only person in their right mind was me, and even to me, none of this made sense. I was pushing people out of my way to get to my truck. I grabbed Tommy and carried him to my truck, throwing him in through the driver's side door. Then I climbed in, just as I heard the saddest sounding howl I'd ever heard. A mixture of sadness and longing came from the trees where that thing had disappeared into. My friend and I were on the highway headed back to his place when we finally said anything to each other. 
He thanked me for getting him, but I just shook my head. Neither of us slept that night, and no one talked about it. We went back in the morning to get my friend's car and all his stuff. There was nothing there to support that anything happened at all. No blood on the ground, no parts in the woods, no ripped clothing. And I have no idea what happened that night. I am no layman to cryptids. This was not some story designed to keep you from sleeping. It was me sharing something that happened to me with you. What was the girl in the pink leather jacket? And that weird man in the jacket? Who had hair all over his arms and smelled like feces and unwashed disgustingness? When his torso was thrown at me, it was hairy too, and his blood was more of a thick black goo. There was also human-like red blood on the ground too, by the porta potties. For sanity's sake, perhaps that man was a skinwalker. I'm okay with saying that out loud, sure, fine, but what about the girl in the pink leather jacket? Were they hunting each other? The more I've thought about that night, the more I realized she was staring at him, not off into space, the whole time. She waited until the other girls were coming back from the bathrooms before making her way to them. Women go to the bathroom in groups for safety and for girl talk, I think. It was all deliberate. What can do that to a skinwalker, though? I've read some pretty creepy stuff about them. I don't know what to say, except that if she was not there that night, someone might have died. Someone is hunting skinwalkers in northern New York. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters, and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I still can't explain what happened at Girl Scout camp a decade ago. From Grace A. I'd like to start off by saying that I'm a skeptic, at least for the most part. I do think that cryptids and ghosts and other phenomena exist, but I also believe that the best way to undeniably prove they do truly exist is to eliminate any possible explanations for what mundane, everyday occurrences could be happening instead. Maybe that strange creature following behind you was simply a sick, mange-ridden bear or coyote. Maybe the noises coming from your basement are from the house's foundation settling, or from mice living in the vents. But maybe they aren't. 
Maybe that strange creature is a werewolf or chupacabra or a relative of Bigfoot. Maybe a spirit or demon is making those noises in your basement after all. The only way to find out for sure is by thoroughly investigating, researching, and collecting evidence. I'm an animal scientist and a biologist by trade, and I've had the importance of data collection drilled into me for years. I believe it applies to unexplained phenomena just as much as it does to physical, structured, scientific research. I have had two experiences in my life that I absolutely cannot explain by any means whatsoever. I've thought about them a lot throughout the years and constantly revisit them, researching possibilities for what could have happened, and I've never come up with any satisfactory explanations. Let's start from the beginning. I was born and grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, I lived about 15 or 20 minutes from the Missouri border, so a good chunk of my childhood was spent split between the two states. When I was a kid, I was involved in Girl Scouts, as were several friends of mine. I was and still am a lover of everything wilderness and camping related, so of course I went on every single camping trip offered by the Scouts. Fourth grade came around and my troop was making plans for an awesome camping trip in western Missouri about an hour from where we lived. The camp, which I'll call Camp T, was situated in the middle of a forest and offered plenty of trails to walk on and explore. There was a huge wooden cabin to sleep in, too. The weekend we had reserved to go to Camp T finally arrived, and I could hardly sit still during the car ride. When we arrived at the camp, everyone rushed into the cabin to find the best places to put their sleeping bags and luggage so we could go outside and play. There were maybe 15 or so girls and five or six parents, including my own mom, on this trip. We argued and bickered as kids do about who got to sleep in what room and who got to sleep next to whom. So I started unpacking and making plans for the evening. We were going to play hide-and-seek and tag, have a bonfire, make trail mix with extra M&Ms and chocolate chips, Stay up late talking about books, movies, boys, school, ghost stories, and whatever else 10-year-old girls like to talk about. At one point while we were playing tag, I needed to run to the cabin for a bathroom break and to grab my bottle of water from my bag. My best friend at the time, Kyra, came with me. We went into the cabin and did our business, and as we were getting ready to head back out, the door to the room we were in latched shut on its own. We knew for a fact we had been the only ones inside, and it's unlikely that it could have been caused by a draft. We were in an interior room, and the cabin had been recently renovated. It was not at all drafty. Of course, Kyra and I joked about it being a ghost, and the cabin being haunted, and blah blah blah, before running back outside but I wonder now if there was more truth to that joke than I had anticipated. Everything went by pretty normally for the rest of the evening. We made hot dogs and s'mores for dinner, had some trail mix as a late night snack, and got ready for bed. Kyra and I were sleeping next to each other and were excited to tell spooky stories and obsess about Harry Potter and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon. We eventually decided it was time for bed. Kyra fell asleep quickly, 
and I was getting pretty tired myself. However, I had an intense feeling of fear and unease in the pit of my stomach. I chalked it up to me being scared from thinking about ghosts and the cabin being haunted. I finally fell asleep, and I had been resting peacefully for what seemed like a few hours, when suddenly I woke up in an intense pain, crying, barely holding back from a scream. My entire body felt as if it was burning. My head was spinning, my vision was blurred, and I had spiked a fever. I stumbled out of my room and found my mom. She and the other parents woke up, turning on the lights to see what was happening. It turns out that what was ailing me was a very severe and horrible case of hives. My entire body, from my feet up to my face, was covered in angry, red, swollen, and itchy splotches, and there was no relief to be found from scratching at them. I've since had multiple fractures and tonsillitis so bad that I had to have steroids injected just to reduce swelling, enough for me to swallow water, and even those occurrences were less painful than these hives. My mom, a former nurse, grabbed me, rushed me to the bathroom, placed me under a cold shower to help soothe the burning and itching. I stayed in that shower for at least half an hour, and my God, it was heavenly. While I was in there, my mom found some Benadryl to give me and some ointment to rub on the worst of my hives. I took the Benadryl and let my mom apply the ointment, and then I passed out from exhaustion as soon as I put my PJs back on and made it into my sleeping bag. By the next morning, my hives had faded to gentle pink welts, and the pain and itching had greatly subsided. By the time I got home later that day, they had all but vanished. My mom and I tried and tried to think of what could have caused the hives. I don't have any food allergies, though I do have very, very mild nasal allergies from pollen in the spring. But this was fall. It couldn't have been poison ivy. It's not like I was rolling around in random plants in the forest or even playing anywhere other than the grass in front of the cabin. I don't have any skin allergies to any plants or fungi that could have existed at Camp T. I'd lived in that area my entire life, and I had never had any reactions like that before, or since, for that matter. Something else to note is that there were nearly 20 other people on that trip. Why had I been the only one affected? My mom, who has been interested in spirits, positive and negative energies, and psychic readings for several years now, thinks I'm sensitive to spirits and energies. I, being the argumentative skeptic that I am, attributed those feelings to me having anxiety and being on the autism spectrum. But honestly, I can't blame her for becoming involved in what may be considered by some to be heretical beliefs. She had been raised in an abusive household that used a falsified version of Christianity to justify physically and emotionally tormenting her and her siblings. If anything, I'm super proud of her for learning to love herself and finding her own beliefs and morals. Maybe the reason I was the only one who got sick on the trip really was because of a sensitivity to the supernatural. 
I can't say that I really believe that this is the case, but my mom seems to believe so, and it makes about as much sense as any other explanation. After that unfortunate camping trip, I spent a couple of sleepovers at Kyra's house, brainstorming what might have caused my reaction and what might be living or existing at Camp T. But we never came to any conclusions. It's been about 14 years since then, and that remains the only time I've ever had hives, despite going to the exact campground years later and living and working in very similar environments in the same part of the country. It was truly bizarre. Maybe there was more to that feeling of unease than I had originally thought. Fast forward four years to middle school. I'm in eighth grade, and my Girl Scout troop had shrunk to only me and three other girls. Kyra and I were still best friends, but she had quit Scouts to focus on other interests. The three other girls were all lovely and kind, though, and I got along great with them. It was fall again, and we were looking into doing a seasonal camping trip. Eventually, we settled on going back to Camp T, planning on doing some hiking, plant and wildlife identification, and working on completing our silver awards. We joked about how I'd gotten sick from the ghosts the last time we were at Camp T, but overall, we were excited for the trip. The weekend of the trip arrived, and we made the drive out to the campsite with one of our troop leaders acting as chauffeur. Everything looked exactly the same as I'd remembered. Beautiful sylvan surroundings, vibrant red and orange leaves on the trees, fresh air, expansive natural areas to roam in and explore. Ghosts, hives, and uneasy feelings were in the very back of my mind and were the least of my worries, for a couple of hours at least. The other girls and I made some plans for the afternoon and evening. Two of them, Eva and Courtney, and I wanted to walk the trails in the area and look for animal tracks and cool plants to get some exercise in. The third girl, Jamie, wasn't feeling up to hiking and stayed behind with our chauffeur at the cabin to prepare dinner and discuss what to make for breakfast the next day. Eva, Courtney, and I decided to walk the main trail, which amounted to about two miles round trip. It circled out from our cabin, across a hillside, past the camp owner's house, and through a densely forested part of the area. We were all huge nature geeks and thought we could handle anything the forest threw at us. Eva and I both wanted to be exotic animal vets at the time, and Courtney regularly went hunting with her father. We were all fairly experienced in camping and hiking. We headed off with a pep in our step and smiles on our faces, ready to pretend to be explorers and make some cool discoveries. If only we had known exactly what we would discover on that hike. We'd made it to about the halfway point of the trail, when it suddenly got dead silent in the woods. If you know anything about camping, hiking, or wilderness survival, you know that this is never a good sign. We saw then a strange, indistinguishable lump on the path several yards in front of us. Curious, we got closer to check it out. I wish now that we would have stopped back then, turned back as soon as it grew silent. But we were curious 13 and 14-year-olds. We thought we were invincible. 
we crept closer to the strange lump and began to see what it was. A sense of dread crept over me as I realized what exactly we had stumbled across. On the trail in front of us was a completely eviscerated deer carcass. The top of the head was lying in the middle of the path. The ears and snout were intact, but the eyes were gone. The bottom jaw and part of the neck had been ripped off, exposing the tongue, trachea, and esophagus. The spinal cord was hanging out of the back of the head, snapped clean in half, though the other half was nowhere to be seen. Off to the side of the path were some of the poor deer's organs. Intestines strung out for several feet, liver and stomach nearby. But that was it. No torso, no lungs or heart or legs or random bones. And perhaps most disturbingly, absolutely no blood. No footprints from what may have killed or eaten the deer. I've done countless animal dissections since then and I've seen enough slaughterhouse corpses and procedures to make even the most staunch meat lover go vegetarian. But this, it remains one of the most graphic and disturbing things I've ever seen, and thinking of it still makes me nauseous to this day. What the hell? Courtney whispered under her breath as we approached the deer. Eva was completely speechless, wide-eyed and frozen in fear. What the heck did this? I asked Courtney, assuming she knew the most about local predators from her hunting background. I don't know. It couldn't have been coyotes. They mostly hunt small animals, and they would never leave a deer out here in the open near humans like this. They're scavengers. They'd eat all of it. I pulled out my laughably small pocket knife. Do you think it could have been a mountain lion? I know they've been spotted a couple of times in Kansas and Missouri. I doubt it. There haven't been many sightings near this area, and an animal that big would have surely been spotted by one of the camp workers, and they would have closed the camp down. Courtney grabbed her pocket knife as well, and Eva, who didn't have her knife with her, put a hand on her metal water canteen so she could have at least something to attack with, other than her hands, if it came down to it. We were all silent for a moment. A feeling of dread built up in my stomach, and I was instantly transported back to four years ago when I had that exact same feeling at this exact same camp. There aren't any large predators in western Missouri. We have coyotes, foxes, and bobcats, but nothing that would, or could, do something like this to a large, fully grown deer. No bears, no wolves. Very rarely, mountain lions, and as Courtney said, we would have been notified if there were a mountain lion in the area. They tend to be pretty noticeable around here, and are extensively monitored by wildlife officials. We all glanced at each other and came to a silent agreement to get the heck out of there. We took off running at full speed down the trail. When we got back to camp, we burst through the cabin doors, panting and speaking incoherently startling Jamie and our chauffeur, who looked at us like we were crazy. Eva and I were holding back tears. We were both huge softies and had never seen a horror movie before, much less a poor, torn-up, dead animal. Courtney was wide-eyed and speechless and seemed to be on the verge of a panic attack. 
We explained what we saw to Jamie and our chauffeur, and they both became noticeably uncomfortable. We were so freaked out that we ended up staying inside, playing cards, working on written assignments for badge requirements, and talking about random nonsense to distract ourselves the rest of the evening. We all slept restlessly when we finally went to bed that night. I couldn't fall asleep for what seemed like hours because I was paranoid that someone or something was looking at us through the cabin windows. We packed up and left early the next morning. I spoke to the other girls in the car ride on the way home, and they had all felt a sense of being watched the night before too. Needless to say, that was the last time any of us ever went to Camp T. On the bright side, at least I didn't get hives this time. Unfortunately, our camp troop kind of fell apart after that. We just didn't have the motivation to continue anything camping-related, or even general scout-related. We all got our silver awards at the end of 8th grade year, and then left Girl Scouts at the beginning of high school. I'm just thankful that none of us were harmed or horribly mentally scarred from the experience, which could have potentially turned out dangerous or even deadly. I'm 24 now and still keep in touch with Eva, Courtney, Jamie, and Kyra, and I'm happy to report that we're all doing great and haven't had any more run-ins with strange creatures, eviscerated animals, or ghosts. Jamie and Eva are both married and have become a teacher and a physical therapist, respectively. Kyra is an amazing artist and earns a living from her art commissions. Courtney is an extremely talented professional horse trainer, and I've since moved to Oregon, continuing my education to earn a PhD in wildlife biology so I can continue learning about and helping the wild animals and plants I love so much. And if you're curious, I'm studying the relationship between native amphibian health and agricultural practices in the Pacific Northwest for my thesis. Anyway, who knows? Maybe I'll encounter another strange, unexplainable occurrence in the woods. Maybe I'll meet Bigfoot. Or maybe I'll find some answers to what exactly happened at Camp T. But all in all, these two experiences are why I can't consider myself to be 100% a skeptic. I have absolutely no explanation for either of them. I've researched plants, animals, fungi, local legends, even mental conditions that could cause hives or such intense fear and paranoia, and I've never found any answers that make sense. At best, it's a fun ghost story to tell friends and acquaintances, and at worst, there is some unknown horrifying creature or spirit living in the forests of western Missouri, tearing apart animals, and terrorizing those who venture too far into the woods. Sometimes, when someone is lost in the woods, finding them might lead you to something else entirely, something not as human and far more hungry. Today's episode features stories about dangerous entities in national parks, mysterious army bases, and creatures that try to break down your front door. So, lock the deadbolt and pray no one comes knocking or clawing. Like this episode and comment below which story was the creepiest to you. For me, I really enjoyed the first one. And if you want your story to possibly be narrated, share it with me at darkstories.org. Now, 
let's begin. The following story is a creepypasta that was inspired by the terrifying and unexplained things that happen in our national parks. I was sent to find a missing girl in Yellowstone National Park, but what I found should not be biologically possible. From all underscore calm, 1999. When are we gonna get there? I asked. Uh, just shut up, we're about there. Said my coworker James. James and I were on a job to investigate a report of a missing person on the southeastern side of the Yellowstone National Park. So, I'm reading the file. The girl's wearing a blouse. It's 42 degrees Fahrenheit outside. I exclaimed. I don't know, dude. I've seen people on the side roads with nothing but a speedo. I look at James and laugh. It's rounding 5.25 p.m. and the sun is setting. Okay, so the map says that we're close. Around 15 minutes. James says. I look out the window and watch the tree line. We'd been driving to the backwoods for around two hours. Do you still have any cigarettes? I ask. Nope. I smoked my last one an hour ago. Frustrated, I turn back to watch the road. This drive had been so boring. Most of the time, there was a radio tower to give my phone signal. We drive in silence for a while. You know, we're probably not going to find her, says James. What makes you think that? I ask. Have you ever figured out that we don't find missing people very often? I pondered that statement for a while, and I did realize that we don't ever find anyone really. Or at least when we do, they're dead. Bill, you alright? He asked me, looking periodically at me while driving. Huh? Uh, yeah, I just never really thought of it like that before. Just as I finished that sentence, our radio came through. Bill, James, got a lead on the missing girl. Over. The operator's voice came again, saying... Head to the south entrance off the side road half a mile past Grant Village. Over. Punch in the coordinates, James said quickly, pulling a U-turn and speeding through the side road and onto the main trail. At this point, we were speeding through the trails, the sky turning a dark red, and the sun below the trees getting darker and darker. I never liked the dark, even now, being 24, I still don't like the dark. I wonder sometimes, what could be out in the vast wilderness besides what we know? As I'm daydreaming, James hits the brakes and we stop. Bill, grab your flashlight and grab your pistol. I grab my handgun and my flashlight to step out of the jeep. The air was so heavy, it felt really weird. Like that feeling you get when you're frightened and there's no reason to be paranoid, but you still are. We closed the jeep doors and started into the woods, walking quickly, shining our beams of light in different directions. The air was so tense you could cut it with a knife. We walked for 30 more minutes and we found something under some leaves, a small brown sneaker. 
This is James. We found a small sneaker. Could this have any correlation with the missing girl? Over. James spoke through his radio. No idea, James. Keep it moving. Radio in if you need backup. Over. James nodded and said, All right, over. Then he put his radio back in its chest holster. James looked at me and gave me the two fingers pointing up then down to make me move forward. So far, I feel that we've walked around 200 yards. As I kept walking, I stepped on a large piece of cloth. I shine my light at it. Looks like part of a blouse. James! I call out. He comes over to me quickly. Is that part of a blouse? Yeah. He radios in the evidence and we keep going. I start to feel like something is with us. I don't know how to explain it. It's as if something or someone was watching us from the trees. Uh, James? Do you feel that? Do I feel what? Well, I feel that something's like, I don't know, watching us or something. It just doesn't feel right here. At this point, I think we were somewhere between Hard Lake and the Yellowstone River. We stop for a second and we pull out some waters. <sighs> James, how long have we been walking here? I ask and he turns to look at me, then looks at his watch. Hmm, around 40 minutes. I look down at the ground and take a swig of water. I finish it, swallowing the last drop. Then, I hear something. I look in the distance and focus on the sound. I scrunch my face and aim an ear to the sound to determine what it is. It sounds like crying, with moaning added between the sobs. I slapped James's shoulder without moving my gaze. Do you hear that? He does the same as me, and the two of us listen for a while. The sound isn't moving, it's staying in the same place. We listen, and I look at James with a confused expression on my face. As I look at him... The sound stops. By this time, the moon was somewhat lighting up the forest in front of us, so I was able to scan the woods. It's then that I see movement. In the corner of my eye, I flick on my light and shine where the path of the movement was going. I saw a human foot pass by a tree. Holy crap. I take off with my light and pistol drawn. I was following a figure running through the woods and it was fast, like a marathon runner. James was right behind me and was saying that we needed to get closer. What do you want me to do? I ask. Run to the left and try to run across her. I ran to the left and tried to catch up with the missing girl. We lost her in the darkness. The two of us stood there for a second and listened again. We looked around. Then I looked at James did you see how fast she was running? I don't know how a little girl can run so fast, James said, breathing heavily. We caught our breath 
and the sobbing moaning sound came again from the left of us. We decided to go on a slower approach. We methodically moved in an oval shape to the sound. I was creeping up on them, and I didn't have my light on, but something looked off with how her body looked. Her back was humped, and she had her arms retracted under her chest, like a T-Rex is portrayed having its arms held under its chest. At this time, we were 50 feet away from her. James sounded off at her, saying, Little girl, we're rangers. We're here to take you. He stopped dead in his tracks. I whispered to him, What's the matter? He didn't answer. He just kept staring at the girl, mumbling something in fright. What is he looking at? I thought to myself, feeling that there was no reason to be afraid. It's just a little girl, I told myself, turning on and aiming my flashlight at her. I'll try my best to describe what I saw. The memory itself has already given me goosebumps just thinking about it. When I turned on the light, the little girl was standing with her back to me. The first thing I noticed was how messed up her back was. It was bent in an unnatural angle downward into a hump. Her vertebrae made it look like she had spikes coming off of her back. She slowly turned around, and when she did, I could feel all my blood leave my face, and a sharp, bone-chilling coldness ran down my body. When she made the full turn to face me, I saw that her legs were like birds' legs. The knee was bent inwards, and her lower legs were coming out past her hips. I looked further up. She was so malnourished that her pelvis was showing through her skin. Her arms had shortened, and she only had three fingers on each hand. Her head and neck are what haunts me the most, as her neck had merged with the back of her head and connected with the rest of her skin and her mouth. God, the mouth. It looked like her cheeks had been sawn down the side and went down into her neck. She moved her mouth and the jaw squirmed and shook with each movement. All the while, she was moaning and crying at us, screaming at us with a gurgled tone in the back of her throat. She squatted her legs, and they went out behind her, and when she did that, she started to stumble towards us, screaming and crying in a gurgled moan. I looked at James, who had his gun drawn on her. He was crying profusely, tears running down his cheeks. He was mumbling, shaking all over his body. The girl at this point hadn't made a move towards him, and when she did, he shot her in the shoulder. She turned, screamed, and cried, then began to run at him. He opened fire upon her again, unloading the entire magazine into her. She wouldn't fall. He turned and yelled at me. Bill, shoot it! I did as I was told, aiming at her and unloading my whole magazine as well. As we sat there, minds running blinks, we just stared at each other. James slowly grabbed his radio and held it tight in his hand, shaking slightly. Uh, we have a code 1096 on location N. 
After that was sent, 15 minutes later, a team of men wearing MOPP gear stepped out of Humvees, telling us to get in the vehicle. As I got in and drove away, I saw the men in suits pour gasoline onto the thing we shot and burn the body. I quit that night. What I saw that night is something I will never forget and will never leave my mind. I don't have answers to the things I think about at night. And now that I'm typing this, those are answers I realize I don't want to learn. Mojave Mountain Man from Wicked Wendigo I grew up in many different towns in Central and Southern California. I attribute this to my stepfather, who was enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps from the early 2000s to the early 2010s. From ages 7 to 12, I lived on a Marine Corps training base in the Mojave Desert, not far from the Yucca Valley National Park. I was 10 years old at the time of this experience. The following story is true, and I have other true stories regarding my time in the Mojave, if anyone is interested. Summers in the Mojave were, as you would expect, hot. Some summer days could reach up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. My stepdad was a low rank in his career at this point, so unfortunately, we were given a low-quality family home on the base. This meant that vital appliances, like the air conditioner, constantly malfunctioned. Usually, when this happened, I could be found at the local public pool or exploring the miles of sand-covered rocky hills that surrounded the base. This story happened on one such occasion. I can't remember exactly, but I'd say it was around 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The AC was broken, and the repair company was not scheduled to fix our unit for another two days. Being inside the house did little to make the heat subside. Outside actually felt cooler with the occasional breeze flowing into my open bedroom window. I'd planned to spend my day at the local pool, but unfortunately it was being sanitized. Apparently a group of teens thought it would be hilarious to throw dog poo into the pool. Needless to say, I was in hell. I decided to go to my friend's house. We'll call him Parker. I went to Parker's to see if he wanted to go explore. We did this together often. He said he'd like to, but he needed to finish his chores first. When he finally finished, we headed off for our usual hangout. It was a little playground about 100 yards from a barbed wire fence that surrounded the base. We called it Home Base. I asked him where he wanted to explore, knowing it would most likely be a place we'd already been to dozens of times before. He said, well, I have a secret place we can go. I found it the other day. I was excited and replied, heck yeah, where is it? Parker pointed to the barbed wire fence. I asked, why are you pointing at the fence? There's no way we can climb that. The barbed wire would rip us apart. He chuckled, stood up, and motioned for me to follow. When we reached the fence, we walked about 20 yards to our left. In front of us stood two large sage bushes. They'd grown out about three feet from the fence line. They measured up about four feet high and had roughly two feet of room between the two. We walked to the opening and Parker pointed to a small hole at the bottom of the fence. The heavy rain from the previous week had washed away the sand from the bottom of it, making a small hole just big enough to fit your arm through. 
we decided we would dig under the fence so we could squeeze through and explore the running trail that was just on the other side. We'd seen many people running the trail before, so we dug. About an hour later, we had made the hole big enough to fit through. We agreed not to venture too far, because we didn't know the area, and it was getting later in the evening. With that, we squeezed through and popped out on the other side. We began our walk down the trail. Occasionally, we would stop to make sure drones weren't flying overhead, watching us, which is hilarious to look back on. A paranoid adolescent mind will make up some crazy things. Anyway, we were about ten minutes into our walk when I spotted something next to a large rock on a hill, just off the trail to our right. The hill was about a half mile ahead of us. The bright sun was glaring off of something. It was about a foot above the ground, just to the bottom right of the large rock. I pointed it out to Parker. He insisted that we go investigate, but I was hesitant. I wasn't comfortable going off the trail. With a few convincing words and a bit of peer pressure, I reluctantly agreed. We started our way towards the hill. I stopped for a moment when I noticed the glare had disappeared. I asked Parker, did you see that? It's gone. But then the glare reappeared suddenly. Parker replied, Hurry up, we're almost there. We continued to walk when we heard an all-too-familiar sound, the sound of helicopter rotors. We instantly dropped to the sand. My heart was racing. I was sure the MPs had somehow found out we dug a hole under the fence and left the base. We couldn't tell immediately where the helicopter was, but Parker pointed out the small black dot far above the hill we were heading towards. Meanwhile, the glare had once again disappeared. We lay on the ground for roughly 60 seconds, when suddenly we saw something large stand up from where we last saw the glare. It was a huge man. We still had a bit of distance between us and the hill, so I could only roughly make out his height and clothing. Not his facial features, though. He stood approximately six foot four and wore an army green jumpsuit. He stood in place for only a few moments before turning around and running down the hill in the direction of the incoming helicopter. We continued to lie down for a few more minutes until the helicopter flew overhead of us and off into the direction of the base. We slowly stood up and debated our next move. Parker insisted we continue and see where the man had gone, but I wanted to head back home. The fact that a random man was out here with us made me anxious. Again, peer pressure took over my rational thinking, and before I knew it, we were ascending the hill. We made it to the top, and my anxiety grew at what we discovered. The first thing I noticed was a large outline of where the man had been lying down, molded into the sand. Next to the outline was a medium-sized duffel bag, and sitting on top of it was a pair of binoculars. This had been the glare I'd seen. It also explained why it would occasionally disappear and reappear. This man had been watching us. My stomach filled with anxious butterflies, and I told Parker I wanted to leave, now. He agreed, but before we could start our descent down the hill... I noticed something moving in the direction the man had run. It was the man. 
He was at the bottom of the hill, just staring at us. I stood there in shock. I could see him clearly now. He had long, gray, unkempt facial hair and had dirt all over his face. He then did something that made me almost cry with fear. He slowly raised his left index finger to his mouth, making the shh motion with his lips. That was it. I was done. I ran in the direction of the base with Parker close behind me. We made it back to home base and vowed to never go in there again. We never told anyone in fear of getting into trouble for making such a stupid decision. To this day, Parker and I talk about the situation occasionally. Who was the man? Why had he been watching us so intently? And why did he run? Was he scared of the helicopter? All these questions are fun to think about now but I'm glad I never got the answers. What on earth was that? From Listener. This all happened five years ago. Back then, I was the type of person who wouldn't believe until you see it. And now, I might as well just believe. I've heard loads of monsters and ghost stories in my life. I found them very thrilling so thrilling that when I had the chance, I would daydream about me in a situation when I would be hunted down by some unknown creature. I'd have to find a way to stop it. My friend Larry was also interested in the paranormal. He and I would sit around my laptop, looking up creepy stories and paranormal creatures. The stories we found would always grab our attention. We'd make comments about what we would do if we were in that person's shoes. I was at his house one day, it was almost evening, and a few cars were driving by since he lived in a remote area. There was a tree line not too far away from his backyard. Larry and I would go on walks there, taking the sights and atmosphere of the woods. Little did I know that my perception of those woods would soon change forever. After nightfall, Larry was at the sofa watching television. I was on my phone watching some of my favorite YouTube videos. I was getting tired, though, so I got up and told Larry that I was going to bed. Larry said okay, and I left to walk up the stairs to one of the rooms he said that I could use. As the beds were very close to the window, I could see the awesome night sky. The moon and stars glowed brightly above the dark silhouettes of the trees. Soon my eyes grew heavier beckoning me to at least close them, falling into a deep slumber. I woke up sometime later. It was still dark. I just couldn't sleep anymore and I didn't know why I couldn't. I tried to close my eyes, but they would just fly open again, as if refusing to sleep. Finally, giving in at the fact that I couldn't sleep again, I sat up. Now, I didn't know if Larry was sleeping or watching television still, he was infamous for watching TV from dusk till dawn. The first thing I did was to look out the window. Still saw the moon and stars, and I saw the woods not too far away. There were lots of deer around, mind you, and most of them wandered too close to Larry's backyard. As expected, that night I did see a deer in his yard. It was sniffing around the grass. Larry had a tall gate that surrounded his backyard. I guess to not let anything in, but obviously that didn't always work. 
Anyway, I was staring at this deer for a while. And then it stopped eating the grass. Its ears perked up, and it began to stare at the tree line. I followed its gaze. Over there, the woods were as dark as ever. I couldn't see anything except the tall, dark shapes of trees. What was this animal looking at? My guess was some kind of predator. The deer stood there quietly. It was like the whole area was put under a time-stop spell. I grew worried. I didn't know what this deer was looking at, but I had a burning sensation that it wasn't good. And then the deer dashed away in fright, and something came dashing out of that tree line. Some kind of animal that I've never seen before. It was all black, so all I saw was just a giant black mass charging from out of the trees at first. I could see pointed ears, a long snout showing dirty teeth. The eyes reflected a bright yellow with small pupils. It was on all fours, so my first thought was that it was a wolf. But I couldn't recall anyone around these parts reporting wolves in the area. And this thing was far too large. I watched it walk slowly, its heavy footsteps pounding the ground underneath. It looked left and right all the while smelling the air, probably looking for more prey or food, probably looking for me. At that thought, I ducked down, covering myself like a scared child who had just seen a terrifying monster emerge from his closet. I didn't move, I didn't cry, I didn't speak. I laid there praying to God that this creature, or whatever it was, didn't find its way into the house. And if it did, Larry and I would be done for. Then I woke up again. I had fallen asleep again somehow, because now the sun was up. I was so thankful that it was dawn. I jumped out of bed and walked into the hallway, only to hear Larry calling my name from the back door that led to the backyard. I found him, and I was met by a confused and scared look on his face. He pointed and looked down at something in the grass. What kind of animal makes tracks this huge? He asked. My heart sank. Those paw prints were in the place where that wolf creature, Thing, was standing the night before. I had to steady my breath so Larry wouldn't notice. Then he turned in my direction looking at something else. And what kind of animal makes claw marks that deep and long? He motioned me over to look where he was facing, and my jaw dropped. There was a multitude of deep claw marks in the back door. This only leaves me with one conclusion. The wolf monster was real, and it tried to get inside. Haunted House From Spooky House when I was 11, my parents bought their first home. It was our first two-story home, and it even had a pool in a large backyard. My dad was probably the most excited about it, because he could get us our first dog now, as all the other homes we had rented didn't allow them. We got ourselves a yellow lab, named Boomer. A year later, we got a second dog, a schnauzer mix named Misty. They were primarily outdoor dogs, and we'd bring them in around dinner time or when the weather was bad. In California, the weather is almost never bad, 
and we were outside with them a large portion of the time. The backyard, as mentioned before, was very large. We lived in the center of a small cul-de-sac, so our property was almost wedge-shaped, with a small front yard and a wide backyard. There was a large deck that spanned from one side of the house to the other. Where the deck ended, on the side of the house with my parents' room, there was an awning that covered that section of the deck, as well as a wooden fence that separated the main part of the yard from the side yard. Under the awning, there was a metal screen door in the fence that allowed us to get to the side yard. These details, the deck and the door, are where things began. I no longer remember how soon after we moved in when it happened. Within a year or two, I think. Activities continued until I was maybe 27 or 28 after I'd moved out. My mother heard things first. While she was getting ready for work one day, she heard the metal door outside open and close. Then she began to hear heavy footsteps on the deck outside of her bedroom. It was like there was a large man wearing boots moving around out there. She told me later that she was scared someone was going to break in. But when she looked outside, there was no one there. The dogs had never even made a peep either, despite being out there with the noise. From then, she would continue to hear footsteps around the house every now and again. One of those first summers there, my two younger siblings and I were allowed to stay home alone for the first time. This was liberating, until we were hanging out in the dining room and began to hear someone walking around upstairs, specifically in my room. I laugh thinking about it now, but I remember the three of us arming ourselves with kitchen knives and slowly stalking our way up the stairs. I couldn't have been older than 12 or 13, my youngest sibling no older than 9 or 10. The sounds we heard had stopped midway up, and we never found anyone upstairs. For a few years, we got acclimated to unusual sounds and occurrences. Heavy footsteps, mostly downstairs, but at night was strictly relegated to my bedroom, along with the sound of papers shifting around, occasional touching on the shoulder or low back, as though someone were squeezing by, and on the rarest occasion, a rosy perfume that neither my mom nor my sister wore would fill the room. Once, the sliding closet door in my parents' room slammed closed as I was using the mirror on it. And when my older cousin, who lived with us for several years, moved out, my sister took her room across from my parents' room. She had to keep the door locked when she slept, because someone always jiggled the handle all night if she left it unlocked. One night, my sister woke up to the silhouette of a man feeling her forehead. She said that the man had spoken said something like, No, that's not good. Before turning and leaving, she wound up very sick with swine flu during the outbreak several years ago. My mom told us that the previous owner was a California highway officer who succumbed to cancer in her bedroom. My bedroom had been his office, and my sister's room was his daughter's room. From then, we were amused by everything that happened around the house, it seemed to be the officer, just going about his routine on occasion. Of course, it didn't stay that way. The atmosphere in the house began to get... heavy. Or oppressive. My youngest sibling's room was beside the top of the stairs, and I'd have to pass by in order to get to my room. 
I'd always feel like something was lurking in the corner of their bedroom, watching me. Going downstairs was always terrifying, too, as I always feared that I was going to be pushed from behind. I always made sure to close their door when they weren't in there. My sibling turned reclusive and drank a lot. My parents are good-intentioned people and generous, but they were reluctant to accept that all of their children were LGBT. My sibling was most affected by it. The more they drank, the more they hid away. The worse the air became. In 2015, my most terrifying experience took place. I can't remember where my parents were, nor can I remember where my sibling was, but my sister was at work and had taken Misty with her. I was home alone, with only my cats and my new dog, Rue. Boomer had passed away four years prior. The only lights on in the house at the time were in the living room, where Rue and I were hanging out. There was the sound of someone large and lumbering slowly making its way down the stairs in the dining room behind me. I froze, my heart rate rising as I listened. Rue was sleeping and hadn't budged. The stairs continued to creak and groan, and then whatever it was stepped onto the ground floor. Now, the houses where we lived in California are elevated, not built directly into the ground. So I could tell exactly where whatever it was, was in the house, based on what part of the floor was creaking in the other room. It moved slowly around the dining room, its footsteps heavier than the ones we'd heard in previous years. It was taking its time, and my blood was running colder and colder. The couch I was on was against the wall that separated the kitchen from the living room. The dark doorway was just ten feet to my left. It stopped in that doorway. It never crossed into the living room. But I was afraid to look at it, afraid of what I might see. I could feel that it was still there. I could feel it staring at me. Rue, I whispered harshly. Rue was stirred awake in the middle of the living room floor. I never even had to point it out to her. She immediately locked eyes with something in the doorway and growled. She is a sweet dog, a border collie, but she bared her teeth and growled at this presence. I braved a glance then, and there was nothing there. No shadow out of place, nothing. But Rue didn't let up. Not until my sister came home from work a couple of minutes later. The oppressive air lifted and Rue stopped. Misty didn't even bat an eye as she plodded in to greet me. So I figured whatever had been there was now gone. Nothing as significant occurred until about a year later. My sister had begun a webcomic that was well received. She would spend hours daily drawing it. It would sometimes be in her room where her desk was. One night, she was drawing a panel for it, looking up satanic symbols for reference, and I was on the floor sitting against her bed. There was something in her room all of a sudden. I could see it this time. It was a three-dimensional shadow and the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Her lamp beside me was on, and the shadow wasn't terribly dark, it would have been easily missed if it had stayed still, but it didn't. I watched out of horrified curiosity and bewilderment as the figure walked in a counterclockwise circle throughout the room, 
stopping behind my sister, looming over her as if watching her computer screen before repeating the process. It would walk behind me, through the bed, and through the lamp beside me and again stop behind my sister. I tried waving my hand in front of the lamp in different areas, trying to debunk what I was seeing, but I couldn't. Finally, I told her I was going to hang out somewhere else because there was something in the room that I didn't want to see anymore. She told me the next day that later that night, she woke up to use the bathroom and had gone to her closet next to her desk for a pair of shorts. When she bent down, something inches from her face growled at her. She bailed on the shorts and just prayed that my parents wouldn't come out of their bedroom across the hall while she hurried to the bathroom. She then took the old painting of Jesus that had survived a house fire that my mom lived through as a child and placed it in the closet. She didn't have any other significant experiences in that bedroom, not even when we drunkenly made a Ouija board and tried to contact the original spirit in the house, the good one. There was barely any response, though I remember it saying that, yes, it was there. My sister demanded that it prove itself real and even insulted it, but there was no reply. So we said goodbye and decided to go to bed. But when we went to the kitchen to deposit our drinking glasses, the sink was running full bore. We may have gotten off easy then, all things considered. When I got married, my sister and her friend became our roommates that year. They experienced something in that apartment briefly. My sister had a significant health issue that required her to move back into our childhood home after the lease was up. She had moved into my old bedroom then, and there was one last experience there that she told me about. As usual, my sister keeps her bedroom door locked when she sleeps. Well, she woke up one night to the most pungent smell, like rot and ammonia. The ceiling was vaulted, and so the ceiling fan had to hang down a couple of feet. The fan, despite not being on, was swinging almost violently. I had never had activity like that in my bedroom before, and I told her that. She then fetched that Jesus painting again, and once more the activity would stop. My family has since moved from that house. Their new house doesn't have the same oppressive aura, and I've never felt that same aura since. I can stand in a dark room unafraid, unlike how it would be in my childhood home. The feeling of something watching you, the overwhelming feeling of malice in the air. It's not even worth the novelty. I never want to experience anything like that again.